Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. We, we grew up in a, in a block of apartments with 24 other families, and all of us need to share the same shelter. And uh, you literally hear bombs falling all around you, you know, and you just don't know if the next bomb will fall on your house or your best friend's house or your grandmother's house and so on. When Gabby Leibovich was a teenager growing up in Israel, he and his family were caught in the crossfire of Israel's war in Lebanon. Gabby, his sister and brother, were forced to dodge missiles that were fired in retaliation on their hometown in northern Israel. A scarring experience for sure, but strangely enough, it marked the young Gabby in a positive way. If I can survive this, he thought, then anything is possible. And after emigrating with his family to Australia in the mid-1980s, he has certainly proved that true. Now based in Melbourne, Gabby Labovich is not exactly a household name in Australian business, but his entrepreneurial chutzpah has seen Gabby and his brother Hezzy build from scratch out of the proverbial garage several of Australia's most successful e-commerce online businesses like Catch of the Day, Scoop On and Eat Now, which became Menulog. After years of hard slog, they've learned lots of valuable lessons, enough to write a book, in fact, just released, called Catch of the Decade. And they made themselves multi-multi-millionaires along their startup journey. In mid-2019, they sold one of their empires, Catch of the Day, which had become Catch Group, to the giant West Farmers for $230 million. Let's hear from Gabby himself. Gabby Labovich, thank you so much for joining me on Build It Thou Come. Uh, hi, Helen. It's great being uh, here with you today. It's an honour. Thank you. Well, it's a great honour to speak to you too. So let's start at one of the high points of your entrepreneurial journey. And we'll get to your serial entrepreneurialism, you know, later in the interview. But one of the high points was that in mid-2019, you and your partner, who's your brother Hezzy, sold your catch group to West Farmers for a cool $230 million in cash. Now, that must have been an extraordinarily proud moment. Uh, look, it's, it's, it certainly was, Helen, and that moment has probably lasted a year from the first <laughs> moment. The team from West Farmers reached out to us, the first meeting we had with them, and then the whole due diligence process. So it's probably taken us a whole year to say, oh, my God, what's going on here? Are, are we really you know, going to sell this business that we started out of the garage to Australia's number one conglomerate, you know, the owner of Bunnings, Kmart, uh, you know, Target and Officeworks. And now our, our, our brand and baby catch will be up in lights. You know, I'm always got a tear as I'm just telling you that it's a very, very special moment that we certainly will never forget. Yeah. Well, in fact, catch of the day as it started out, and we'll go back to that, but I just want to sort of stick with this moment of when you actually sold to West Farmers in 2019. Catch of the day was a fantastically successful online retail disruptor. And there you are being bought out by one of the major disrupted, the bricks and mortar Kmart and Target stores that were part of West Farmers? Uh, look, I mean, credit to West Farmers for uh, reaching out to us and seeing the opportunity. 
Would you believe that over the last decade, not a single disrupted, you know, Goliath of industry has ever reached out to us in the hope of of acquiring us or teaming up with us or or, or merging with us, etc. The funny thing is right now, as we are reaching the end of COVID-19 and digital has uh, become the talk of the town and, you know, the talk on everyone's lips right now. And uh, would you believe the business that we sold to them is probably worth today 10 times more than that, simply because everyone realized that, you know, e-commerce is here to stay. E-commerce has moved in leaps and bounds forward. Everyone is using it right now. Yeah. And it's really interesting. None of us could go to our local shopping center for the last two months in Victoria. And that's given e-commerce players such an amazing boost. Yeah. Extraordinary. So how did that sale come about? You say they came knocking on your door because you did go down the path of a possible IPO, the you know a public listing in 2018. So what stopped you from doing that public listing? So we did go down the path of uh, you know preparing for IPO, uh, including flying to Hong Kong and meeting with investors, Sydney, New Zealand, and so on. Just to uh, recap the timing, we're talking mid-2018, uh, and we were ready to press the button. And in October 2018, our bankers uh, at the time reached out to us and said, hey, guys, the market is a little bit choppy right now, and uh, no company will be listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. We completely do not recommend it. Uh, what we suggest is let's go back to business, and uh, we'll, we'll reassess our options in the early 2019. Both myself and my brother were quite happy when that happened because the truth is we never wanted to be, uh, you know, founders, CEOs, or leaders of a listed company. Why not? We see ourselves as simple guys. We don't like the, the we like to call it bullshit. There's no other way to describe it in our language <laughs> of, of being a listed company and everything that is necessary with reporting once every quarter, wearing suits and ties, shaking lots of hands and worrying every day about the share price of your business rather than concentrating on running the business itself. So the truth was that at the time we were quite excited that the deal got cancelled, we got back to work and uh, you know, three or four months later we got that knock on the door from uh, West Farmers. So what was the attraction from West Farmers' point of view? What do they get from you? You you say, you know, it took all that time for an established retailer, any established retailer, to even think, oh, maybe we should team up with these guys. They know how to do online. But what was the attraction from West Farmers' point of view? It's something that we did think about for quite some time during that process of, of, uh, of due diligence. And in the book, we have a quote from uh, Ian Bailey, the current CEO of Kmart and Target. And uh, he says something along the lines of, we've been watching uh, the growth and the progression of catch for a number of years. And uh, you guys seem to be making all the right moves year after year after year while growing the business at the same time. And that's not, uh, not something that's very easy to achieve. And uh, they gave us a lot of respect for that. What attracted to them to us was uh, was a bunch of things. So we were certainly uh, leaders in uh, digital, growing a, you know an e-commerce place uh, in the world uh, that bricks and mortar truly controlled. And we did it literally from the garage in 2006, and we kept on growing year after year. Well, how much growth? Like, just give us an idea of some figures of your growth. 
2018, our revenue was uh, $350 million. In 20, uh, the year, a year earlier, it was 220. And uh, when we exited the business, the uh, revenues of the business was $550 million. Wow. And the business kept on growing, of course, during COVID. Interestingly enough, I mean, in the first five or six years of business, we doubled every single year, Helen. Our revenue in year one was $7 million. In year two was 16. In year three was 32. In year four was 60. In year five was 126. And uh, the hardest part that, you know, that we really struggled with in those early days was, uh, was really growing pains. So you also knew how to do digital retailing, right? Absolutely. So that was a major attraction, of course. And interestingly enough, you know, even a company like Bunnings, Australia's number one bricks and mortar and Australia's number one retailer has only launched their e-commerce capability this year. Can you believe it? I can't believe it, actually. I'm sure they're so happy that they did that because they must have had a tremendous period during COVID-19 with click and collect and, uh, and online shopping. Just to finish yeah. my question, yes. attracted uh, West Farmers to us was our logistical capability. We were one of the first ones to invest in logistics. As, as early as 2013, we spent $20 million at building a, a tremendous uh, robotic warehouse. Uh, it's in the suburb of Traganina on the western side of, uh, of Melbourne. And we were certainly leaders in logistics. But I think the key, the key point, uh, Helen, is, is really people. We've built a tremendous team of people, uh, leaders within you know, our niche space, which is e-commerce, leaders in customer service and in uh, digital marketing and logistics, of course, and buying, which is, I think, the most important part in this business. We are tremendous buyers and marketers of products and put it all together. We managed to build what is known as, as Australia's you know, most successful e-commerce site in Catch of the Day that later on rebranded to Catch. Yeah. Tell me about, I believe there was a a wonderful moment, I guess, what it felt like to return to the High Point Shopping Centre in Melbourne's northwest suburbs almost a year ago in November 2019, and you returned to see a brand spanking new catch pop-up store inside the larger Target. Now, this is a a shopping centre where you had worked during Christmas some 14 years before. Tell us about that. That's correct. So it's I'll, I'll go one year earlier. So sometimes in uh, towards late of 2018, we get a phone call from uh, Chatstone Shopping Centre announcing to us that they have an amazing uh, you know retail place that they would love for Catch to open a store. And until that moment, Catch hasn't had uh, you know any experience in running a bricks and mortar store. Certainly not in Australia's number one shopping site, Chatstone. We said, screw it, let's do it. And within a month, we opened a store at, uh, at, at Chatston, 2,000 square meter, and it was a huge success. It was only there for four months, and, and it certainly elevated uh, you know, the, the, the brand of catch. Once we've sold the business, as you've mentioned, it was amazing to see that in December 2019, or probably in you know, November 2019, West Farmers decided to open a physical catch store inside a Target store at the shopping center, again, on the western side of Melbourne, called uh, High Point. It's the second most successful one after Chatston in Victoria. And yes, walking into that store, uh, seeing it so busy and exciting, seeing how uh, happy staff are to, uh, to run a catch store and be proud of that brand, 
seeing lots of lit signs, neon signs with the catch logos. Again, you know, teary moment, pinch me moment, call it whatever you like. You know, the brand that we started, again, out of nothing, uh, is, is, is up in lights in, in, in one of Australia's most successful stores and shopping centers. Mm. So how did you come up with the idea of, uh, well, initially it was catchoftheday.com and as you say, it, it progressed into Catch Group, but how did you even think up that idea of Catch as an online business offering branded products on a first-party basis and then it progressed into an online marketplace? Is that right? Yes, that is correct. So uh, over the years of 2004 and 2005, both myself and my brother have run a separate uh, eBay stores. This was our first uh, foray into uh, online shopping. But just to take you back to 2004, 2005, when I told people that I'm selling stuff online, no one really knew what online is. And the first question that you probably received from most is, is it safe to put your credit card online? You know, these were the days that no one really took it seriously for that reason. Very few, there were very few sellers, but just the same, there were very few buyers. In 2006, we decided to uh, join forces, myself and my brother, and we took a tiny warehouse in the suburb of uh, Morabin in Melbourne. It was 200 square meters uh, large or small. Uh, We put a team of six people around us together and we launched a site that was at the time called Daily Deals. And Daily Deals was what you would describe today a department store. Unfortunately, our department store had only 100 products simply because we didn't have the money, nor did we have the space, nor did we have the people to be able to grow it. And uh, the most important thing was, or the most uh, important uh, hindrance was that None of the retailers, none of the brand owners actually wanted to sell goods to us because, you know, why would they? Exactly. Uh, Strap their model. In October 2006, we launched uh, Catch of the Day. The model of Catch of the Day was quite simple, but uh, crazy just the same. And what was it? Every day at, at midday, we launched a single product, and that's all you could see on the site. The site uh, was built on the FOMO model, fear of missing out. <sighs> Slowly but surely, customers uh, started telling their friends. I'm very proud to say that in our first six years in business, we did not spend a single cent on marketing, Helen. That's so it's it, it's it's crazy in today's uh, in today's world where everyone spends so much money on you know above the line and below the line marketing with people, companies like Facebook and Google. But we did not spend any money on marketing. We've just put great products on the page. But, uh, but Gabby, t- sorry, can I just stop you there? That does sound like a great salesman talking and clearly you're a great salesman. I mean, how did you even get people to the site in those early days? It's a very good question. So we started with a tiny little uh, database that we've accumulated of customers that uh, you know bought on eBay from us. Right. It was it was very very s- small database. The rest of it we relied on word of mouth. People telling their friends about that little site that they discovered online that uh, sells a different product every day at midday. On day one, they we would sell a DVD player. On day two, it would be a battery charger, and on day three, maybe a pillow or a Manchester product. No one knew what they would expect uh, to see on midday. Wow. 
So it was one product, you didn't have yeah. a lot of stock or you pretended you didn't have a lot of stock and you really did have a lot of stock and then went on sale at midday? No, we, we, we never pretended. I mean, sometimes we had a lot of stock and we tried to sell it all and sometimes we may have had only 200 units. Right. And some days the product sold out within 24 hours. On other days it would sell out within an hour or 25 minutes. Or on some days, it would not do well at all, simply because it wasn't a successful item. Right. But generally speaking, we I think one of the main reasons for our success was that we were able to spot opportunities and spot products and and and, and buy them at great prices and uh, offer them to the consumer at, at you know prices that you know they couldn't believe, and that created a, a big buzz. And, you know, within a short time, we find ourselves as the most watched and the most followed uh, online shopping site in Australia. Oh, it's it's kind of extraordinary. So just let's is, sort of stay at the beginning for a while. When you progressed from daily deals to sort of catch of the day, was that your original idea or how did you actually come up with that idea? Okay, it's not an original idea. Uh, we definitely don't claim ownership on it. We copied or got inspired by a different site. We got inspired by a site called Wood, W-O-O-T.com. It was an American-based site. Wood is actually in existence today and is today owned by Amazon. And Wood was the first crazy company in the world to come up with that daily deals concept of selling just one deal a day. And we thought to ourselves, wow, that's an interesting concept. We are good buyers. Uh, we're struggling at growing our range, maybe we should go the other way and shrink our range and concentrate on one deal rather than a million different deals. I'm happy to say that it worked. (laughs) Amazing. So would you say back then there was an actual vision or was there a business plan at the beginning or did you kind of just stumble onto it? The truth was that we did not realize that it's going to become as big We gave it a try. When we launched Catch of the Day, we're actually running a bunch of uh, parallel, you know, businesses slash opportunities at the same time. We had our site called Daily Deals. We were still selling on eBay, which uh, was the majority of the business. And we were selling on morning television as well. You know, the shows of Bert Newton and Carrie Ann at the time where we would feature, you know, silly items like like a pillow or a steam iron, etc. So we had four components to the business. We did not realize that catch of the day would kill the other three parts and become the success that it was. And the truth is in 2006, when we launched the business, our only aim was to, you know, earn a basic salary, uh, you know, pay the bills and put money on the table and, and certainly did not imagine that it would become you know, the success story that it has become. Yeah. So can you actually remember the very first product you sold on Catch and that feeling when sales actually started to come in and did sales come in from the very first day? Look, I will never forget that first night where, uh, by the way, in the initially we uh, copied wood and we sold, we launched the sale of the item at midnight so I'll never forget that night where all of us are sitting in our tiny little warehouse in Morabin, and all of us, meaning six people, uh, waiting for the for the sale to start. And uh, our first product was a DVD recorder by a brand called Thompson that we sold for $99. It was a great deal at half price. And there were lots and lots of people on the site, uh, you know, waiting to buy the product. 
And uh, unfortunately, there were too many people and we were not prepared. And the site crashed uh, just after us selling about uh, 13 of them. Oh, nightmare. <laughs> yeah. We did that for about four days and we were in the office until two or three in the morning every single night. And uh, we realized that this uh, cannot continue any longer. And after week one, uh, we decided to move the deal from midnight launch to a midday launch. Right. And the History. Yeah. So how much of a struggle were those early years? I mean, honestly, did the sales just keep growing and cover your costs and pay you a wage? Or was it a struggle in those early days? Look, I mean, you can call it a struggle and the launch of every business is a struggle. And I say those first three years of 2006 to 2009 were the most exhilarating, exciting, you know, crazy period of my life that will most likely will never be repeated again. You know, the point of coming to work with uh, with, with an idea and, and working towards it and seeing it eventuate into something really exciting and surrounding yourself with a great bunch of people and being happy to go to work and, uh, and, and of course, seeing success. And success at the time did translate financially. Day one, we sold 13 of those DVD players. And I'm guessing in month uh, two, we already sold 60 of any single item. And in month three, it moved to 300. And in month six, it may yeah. have been 1,000, 3,000 of a single item in a single day. You know, the sales kept rolling in, new customers uh, kept rolling in, the money kept rolling in. It, it, it was a lot of fun. From what you're saying, I mean, it would have dawned on you pretty quickly that this was actually taking off. Or was there a particular moment when you thought, oh, my gosh, this is really going to work? The truth is, no, it was it was just a, a, a progression. Right. It was a progression as more and more customers came in, more supplies kept hearing about it. Suddenly we started being talked about, you know, you know, out there in the media. Uh, for example, I will never forget the first night we were featured on, uh, on, on Today Tonight in a current affair. It took us about a year and a half to grow our database of emails to about 50,000 and after one night on on on, uh, on today tonight or a current affair, I can't remember which one. It's probably both of them. We managed to grow our database from fifty thousand to a hundred thousand members. What that meant is that from the next morning, a hundred thousand Australians were talking about our site rather than fifty mm. logging in. Mm. That snowball just kept growing and growing. Yeah. So I guess if you look just to step sideways slightly. More broadly, what was happening in e-commerce in Australia? I mean, what sort of competition did you have? Because Amazon had branched out from just selling books, I think, in the late 90s and by 2000, so well before you started Catch, Amazon had added health and beauty and CDs, DVDs, toys, etc. And Kogan, I think, also started in 2006, didn't he, selling TVs online? So was he your competition? Kogan was certainly a competitor in the early days, but uh, one thing that differentiated us at the time, so in our first uh, you know, five years of business, Kogan sold only electronics. We decided from day one to appeal to uh, the Australian consumer, and that means we featured product that suited young and old, male and female, country and, and rural. You could see anything on our site from toys to electronics to Manchester to groceries to cosmetics. And people came every day just absolutely not knowing what they would find. So the truth is, in the early days, we were not competing with Kogan as much because electronics was not a strong category for yeah. us. And for him, it was the whole business. Yeah. 
Well, we talked about this, you know, how did you get people to your website and find your products? Because this is all pre-Facebook or Instagram advertising, isn't it? It absolutely is. I touched on earlier a little bit about the, the FOMO, fear of, uh, fear of missing out uh, model. And yes, I mean, nothing beats uh, word of mouth more than a customer that tells their friend, wow, look at this latest pair of Adidas shoes that I purchased. They only cost me $80 and I saved, uh, you know, $50 on them. People love raving about the, the, the latest uh, purchases and that's something that's probably never going to end. And it, uh, it certainly worked in our favor. People told their friends and our database kept on growing. Yeah. Uh, as they kept growing, we could sell more product. As we sold more product, we could attract the largest suppliers and impress them with larger kind of volumes. Okay, but how did you price things so cheaply? How did you convince those brand companies like Adidas or any of the big brand companies to let you sell their products so cheaply online? Wouldn't that have cannibalized their own sales in their bricks and mortar stores? So in the early days, uh, we were not dealing with the Adidas's and the Sony's right. of the world. Most of the deals that we received was from unknown uh, importers of, of goods and brands uh, scattered around the suburbs of, uh, right. of, of Melbourne mainly. I was the main buyer in the first three years. I was driving on, in, in a van, knocking on doors, introducing the whole concept of, uh, of e-commerce and the message was quite simple. Hi, I'm Gabby from Catch. We sell online. What do you have in your warehouse that you need to clear? Right. All retailers and all brand owners make mistakes. And we used to buy their mistakes and their problems, stuff that they overordered, items that they got stuck with, seasonality. You know, you want to get rid of your winter products uh, as summer approaches, etc. Brilliant. And what those suppliers did is they converted their slow-moving stock into cash. And when they did that, we were able to buy unbelievable products at, uh, at great prices and offer those savings to the consumer. Yeah, extraordinary. And then as you got bigger, you were able to attract the big brand names, were you? And still buy well so that you could sell, you could price their products on your website cheaper. Absolutely. And when more and more suppliers joined and more and more suppliers uh, joining every day, I'll take this conversation to the other side. It still uh, amazes me that every day, even today, Helen, some suppliers refuse to sell to onliners mm. and some suppliers still refuse to sell to marketplaces like Catch, Kogan, Amazon and eBay. And they're super protective uh, of their brand. Why is that, do you think, Gabby? And, and why don't they see that perhaps that's just another avenue to sell? That's exactly right. So the way that we look at retail is uh, you need to be where the customer is. And the customer is on Catch and on Kogan and on uh, Amazon and on yeah. eBay. And unless you feature your products on those marketplaces, chances are the consumer will still shop there, but they won't be buying your Adidas shoes. They'll be buying the competitor from Nike. Still amazes me. But yeah, as you mentioned earlier, more and more suppliers joined in. Uh, our reputation kept on growing. We were known to be as, you know, good guys in the industry, people that uh, do the right thing by suppliers, a buyer that uh, buys on time, sells on time, and, and, and does the right thing to elevate the brand that was featured. 
How challenging was it to scale up that business? You're saying it was it was kind of really fast growing and successful from the beginning. So were you funding the growth out of cash flow? Did you borrow money in those early days? Were you making money and were you making lots of money? Okay, we have never uh, borrowed a cent. We always used uh, our own earnings and profits to keep on growing the business. You touched on, uh, on, on, uh, on growth. And yes, I mentioned earlier that we double the business every single mm. year, first five or six years. And uh, when I think about it right now, the biggest obstacle that we've, you know, experienced over the last decade is, is growing pains. Growing pains meaning selling twice as much every single year. It's twice as many parcels. It's hiring twice as many people. It's uh, most likely moving uh, warehouses every 12 months. Can you imagine moving to a different warehouse every 12 months? It's a real pain in the ass just dealing with real estate agents, let alone dealing with trucks, moving the goods from A to B. Yeah. So how challenging was that scale up? It was very challenging. It was very challenging. And it was probably the hardest part that, that, that we have experienced, uh, you know, in, in that decade of, 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 of growing catch. But you bootstrapped it all, all came from your own money and money from the business? It, absolutely. Uh, the business was profitable every single year. Actually, I'll go even further. Every single day, every single week, month and year uh, since inception, you know, I mentioned a few numbers in the book. I mean, as early or as late as 2012, uh, the business did had an EBITDA of $24 million in 2012. If you go and look at uh, some of the listed company in the Australian Stock Exchange today, valued at a billion dollars, they would not even be making that today. Yeah, extraordinary. So, and then just out of all that, you were funding the business, but were you also taking home a nice amount of money? Uh, in the first few years, we, we didn't. The first time that we took home a nice amount of money is when we uh, sold 40% of the business to a consortium of investors. The main one was a VC from New York called Tiger Global. And uh, together with him, the rest of the consortium was uh, James Becker, the Bassett brothers from yeah, uh, Seek. from Seek and others. Uh, at the time, we sold 40% of the business at a valuation of uh, 200 million, which was just unheard of in, uh, that happened in the month of May, 2011. So almost a decade ago, it was one of the largest investment into an Australian startup. Our life was never the same again. <laughs> yeah, extraordinary. So you got 40% of 200 million in 2011. You'd only been going, what, five years? That's correct. So that was $80 million. Yeah. Extraordinary. So how did Scoopon happen and what was that? So Scoopon is a site that we launched in uh, April 2010. Again, it was not our idea. My brother, Hezi, who is my partner in everything, has spotted uh, a site in the USA called Groupon. And Groupon came up with the uh, interesting concept offering unbelievable deals on things like massages, restaurants, entries to park, travel, and so on. And uh, when we looked at it, we said, wow, this is very similar to Catch. Catch sells unbelievable deals and limited time offerings on products. Mm. Scoopon does that on services. Chapter number two in our book starts with Scoopon, and the title of the chapter is a great idea by midnight, uh, execute by midday. 
And uh, we remember how, you know, when my brother told me about that site, we were sitting at uh, Nando's restaurant in uh, Springville. We would never forget. And he showed me Groupon. And uh, I told him uh, the following line, shit, we've been seeing a lot of, uh, you know, products, I mean, businesses and opportunities lately. But this is a good one. And uh, and literally by midday, we started uh, executing and building that business, which turned out to uh, to be a very successful one as well. Amazing. So building that up, did you fund it just from cash flow? The interesting with that, so uh, when we launched Scoopon, we had one major advantage that most uh, startups do not have. We had an unbelievable following and a great database of catch of the day. So what we did to launch Scoopon is we went again and again to the database audience of Catch and told them, you like Catch, why don't you look at Scoopon? Right. And that's how Scoopon was built. And of course, financially as well, we had the opportunity to, um, you know, to finance and grow that business from the profits that were generated by Catch of the Day at the time. Yes. Yeah. So what was your yardstick of success for Scoopon? How big did it become? How many customers did you have on the database? How did you measure its success? Truth is, Helen, in the early days, we measured success by yearly EBITDA. Yeah. <laughs> uh, call us traditional retailers. Yeah, fair enough. The world has completely changed today and no one cares about EBITDA and that specifically happened in 2020 during Corona where companies are being measured on uh, on revenue. Mm. We truly measured ourselves on how profitable the business is. That's what we looked at every every morning when we saw the report from the night before or, 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 or on our monthly summary. We wanted the business to be profitable and, you know, startups and business owners should not be ashamed in uh, trying to turn a profit. Yeah. As long as you're a legal business and you keep everyone happy from your suppliers to the taxmen to your customers, you should be very proud and it should be something that you should try to achieve. And that means, you know, be as profitable as you can. <laughs> yeah. So just to uh, remind some of our listeners, EBITDA is, of course, earnings before interest tax, depreciation, amortization. So it is essentially the measure of operating profit. Excellent. I'm happy you said that, Helen, because I didn't know what it stands for. <laughs> of course you did. What were your mum and dad thinking about all this success? Because you'd started out working in your dad's electronics retail shop in Brighton in Victoria, didn't you? You started out on the floor as a salesman? Yes, correct. So I definitely come from, you know, a line of uh, of, of retailers. I, we grew up and we talk about, uh, you know, dinners and dinner time. And during dinner time, we talked about uh, business products and uh, opportunities on, uh, on, on how to make money, as simple as that. And yes, I've been a retailer all my life, as early as selling in, uh, in in markets all around Melbourne when I was 16 and 18, in Croydon Market and Wantana Market, later on various retail businesses. And prior to starting, you know, Catch or eBay from the garage, I worked in a business in Brighton with my dad, something similar to a Good Guys or a JB Hi-Fi for you to understand uh, what we did. And that was one store, that was your dad's business, one store? was his business. I was working for my dad, learning the ropes, and I'll forever be you know, thankful for it because I'm guessing that's where I've learned my, 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 my main skill in life, and my main skill in life is buying. I'm a buyer first and foremost, 
you know, I love marketing and I love branding. And, and, and I've learned those lessons, um, you know, in that decade and a half of uh, working in the family business. And then something really interesting thing happened, uh, Helen. They invented the internet and online shopping, which allowed us to take the, the, the idea of retailing that, that I knew and loved so well and be able to, to scale it such that customers could buy from you at midnight and they don't have to be in Brighton. They could be as far as Perth, Darwin or anywhere else. So you've in fact built from scratch, not one, but a couple of, of massive e-commerce businesses. And you've also helped others build their empires. So we will come back to that later in the interview, in, in part two of our interview to your other major successes with Eat Now and Menu Log. But, but I do just want to track back into your family life. You are from an immigrant family from Israel. When did your family come to Australia? And why did they decide to come? Okay, so uh, I turned 51 months ago. I arrived in Australia at the age of 16, and the year was uh, 1986, September 1986. I finished year 10 in Israel, and I jumped into year 11 in uh, Melbourne. Wow. As you can imagine, year 11 with no English is not exactly an easy (laughs) task. No English when you came in year 11? Very basic, very basic immigrant English, mainly learning it from, you know, you know, a school, uh, international school back then in television. <laughs> wow. Uh, but certainly enough to do year 11 and 12, you know, biology, chemistry, maths and, uh, and so on. But uh, I just say I did okay. Why did your family come to Australia? Look, the only way to describe it is looking for a better life. I don't have uh, any yeah. other answer. Uh, Israel is an interesting place, uh, stuck in the, middle, uh, in the Middle East with not too many neighbors all around it. I grew up in a city called uh, Naharia on the north of Israel. Mm-hmm. It's the closest to the border with Lebanon. You know, we have experienced war in uh, 1982. Our city was the main target of attack. And, uh, you know, we've had a very interesting uh, childhood Mm. So when Israel went to war with Lebanon, it, it invaded in 1982 and it laid siege to Beirut. But nonetheless, your city in northern Israel was this target for attacks. What missile attacks were they? Absolutely, yes. So you were living in the middle of a war zone as a young, early adolescent. Yeah, we'll never forget that. You know, myself was you know 12. My brother was uh, six. We sit in a shelter. We, we grew up in a, in a block of apartments with 24 other families and all of us need to share the same shelter and you could sit there for hours and days and there'll be, you know, a, a large amount of people in a room the size of, you know, 50 square meters and uh, you literally hear bombs falling all around you, you know. You shit yourself. There's no other way to describe it and you just don't know if the next bomb will fall on your house or your best friend's house or your grandmother's house and so on. And that was part of our childhood. And, you know, it might sound surreal and it will sound surreal to any Australian kid that will never experience, you know, that kind of a childhood. But at the same time, I think that I had the best childhood ever for so many other reasons that, again, we talk about, and I don't know if we'll have time to discuss today. So how do you think Gabby, it affected you living in a war zone. How do you, you must reflect on that period often and think, well, did it make me shrink as a growing human or did it make me embrace life? 
it definitely did not make you shrink. I think the complete opposite. Uh, you know, we talk in the book about the concept of the third door. And what's the third door is when no one, people tell you, I don't want to sell you stock in the front door. You go through the back door and then you go and then you go through the window. And, uh, you know, after having bombs falling all around your house and, uh, you know, your life being risked every single day, you know, nothing can really stop us. You can call it arrogance, you can call it brazens, you can call it chutzpah. Uh, it's a combination of all of the above. But, uh, you know, having grown in, in that melting pot of, uh, of Israel, being grown with lots of um, immigrants all around you with so, with, from so many countries, you learn mm. to share and you learn to care. And uh, I'm sure that it helped us in so many ways in building our businesses. Yeah. Nonetheless, your parents obviously decided to and did get to Australia. Your father was an electronics engineer and he ended up as a retailer. Was your mum involved in the retail business too? Uh, only in a supporting act, you know. She was always the uh, taking care of the house, kids and, you know, helping around the business in, in a supporting act, but not, not from the front. Yeah, so you say you, you did sit around the dinner table, what, always discussing business, discussing sales? Look, it's, it's just part of memories. When you think about your childhood, what did we talk about? You know, I'm a soccer fanatic. I don't remember us ever discussing soccer, you know. It was always, <laughs> it was always various various opportunities that, that came across, you know. And, uh, and I'm guessing it, it becomes part of your DNA. And, you know, I can, I can see it right now when my wife is telling me, hey, Gabby, you sold your business, but your brain is always working. You always think about, you know, the next big thing and the next opportunity. And I, I just can't stop myself. It's, it's who we are. And, 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 you know, I'm happy or sad to say that my brother, who's my partner, is, is actually exactly the same when it comes to uh, having that uh, drive to succeed that, uh, and that drive to build. Mm. So were you driven even as a teenager or as a young man? Is this something your, your parents instilled in you or do you think it's your personality, your makeup? No, I, I certainly don't, don't remember myself as being an overly uh, driven or looking for kind of success teenagers. I used the teenagehood to be a teenager and that means uh, surfing and playing lots of soccer and going to parties and, and having fun. And, uh, you know, even when I finished school in Melbourne, I did not know what I want to be when I grow older. And uh, I ended up doing computer science at, uh, at, at Monash Uni simply because I couldn't, I didn't get good enough marks to get into something any better than that. Yeah, but so you do understand digital and technology and you've got a backing there. I, you know, I studied computer science between the years of 88 and 91, way before they invented the internet. I'm proud to say that I was probably the uh, worst uh, student in the class. <laughs> I knew that as soon as I finished uni, I'll join the family businesses and become uh, a kind of uh, a, a retailer. So I, I never took uni too seriously, but you, you still learn a lot uh, from going to university. Yes. Yeah, so were you sort of, uh, I guess what you're saying is you were expected perhaps to go into retailing or did you in fact so love the idea of selling and, and that give and take and, and uh, being on the floor that you couldn't wait to get into the family business? Yeah, the, the latter is correct. I was certainly <laughs> not expecting had any expectations on us to do one thing or the other. But uh, I have to say that I'm a, I'm, I'm a lover of retailer. I love getting catalogs in my mail. I love walking into supermarkets uh, when, when, when I'm overseas. 
I love reading the paper and look at various uh, ideas of, of marketing and branding. I, I, I truly enjoy it. And it's one of the things that I really miss right now. And I certainly miss throughout 2020 of not doing it again in the form of catch or any other form. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter at Helen underscore Daly. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know. Share it around your networks and I'd love you to give it a star rating to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into an empire.